let's begin then. Before we do so, let us all take a moment to remind ourselves how extremely fortunate we are to be disciples of the Buddha, to have taken this leap of faith and gone forward and gone forth to reap the fruits of the sasana, to free ourselves from suffering, achieve our liberation. None of this would be possible if not for that one man who ventured this journey all by himself with no teacher, no guide, no guide book, no instructions to follow, no right turn, wrong turn, no signposts, nothing. Just by the sheer power of his merits, accrued over an infinite number of rebirths, time spent in sansara, sacrificing his leg and limb, eyes, ears, and the entirety of his body, giving up his heart, giving up his blood, sweat and tears on behalf of not just humanity but all sentient beings because he had one resolve in mind and that was to free himself as well as all sentient beings from suffering. Today we celebrate that, having achieved that victory all by himself. Today we enjoy the fruits of his labor, reminding ourselves of all that and with gratitude in abundance in our hearts, let us take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely virtuous one, he whose compassion is unparalleled, who, he whose wisdom is infinite, he whose loving kindness is beyond measure. To his holy name we make this veneration and let us also take this pledge that for as long as we are alive, for as long as our hearts beat, for as long as there's breath left in our bodies, we will strive, we will make effort, and we will endure to achieve the gift that he so wanted all of us to do. Let us take a moment to do that now. <clears throat> Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa it is very satisfying to see that it was all worth it. Because when we first took this step in this direction, we just had this intuition that we were doing the right thing. 
It was almost like an instinct. Yes, we had the Dhamma. The Dhamma had already become our refuge. We realized that there was no point in an existence in which we had not committed ourselves and devoted ourselves to the Noble Triple Gem. That much was clear. But then our vision was none, was like none other. We didn't want to do what everybody was doing. Because we looked around, we studied, we looked at what was going on out there. And although there were things that were done very well, there were things that were not there was that were done not so well. So we wanted to create our own thing. It was not really our own thing, but we envisaged <clears throat> if the Buddha had been alive today, how would he might have approached in today's day and age with the challenges and adversities that people have in the 21st century, with the problems that young men have to face today, and young women, children, the elderly, adults, all of them. What sort of problems do they have? What are the obstacles that are in their way that stop them from achieving this salvation when we call ourselves Buddhists? And we pride ourselves in being in the land of the Buddha? How do we bring the Buddha to the people? This was a question we had. <clears throat> because the Buddha had come to us. So it was our turn to introduce the Buddha to many others. So in some senses it was a bit of a gamble. We didn't know what we were doing really. But we had that intuition and we had a good will. We had both intuition and good intention. So some of you may know some of these stories, others may not because it is a journey that we have taken over not just the last five or six years that you've seen the monastery come up, but many years before that. This was all in the making. Piece by piece, first the idea started coming together on paper. A lot of people got around. Not everyone came along, but some were there at the beginning, and then some were there through the middle, and some will be there at the end. That's always the way it is. Not everyone who jumps on board at the beginning is left at the end. Some just parachute their way down. So we just think when we see such sort of thing happen, we must have done the same in previous ministries of the Buddhasasana. So perhaps it was not our time then in the Kakusanda Buddha Tathagatanvansa's time. Maybe it was not our time in the Kashiva Buddha's time. Maybe we'd done the same. But this time round, we feel confident that we are in it to win it. So there are those who came along, but then somewhere down the line, they thought this was not for them. But they paved the path for many.
And we must be grateful to, to all of them. When this was just a plan on a piece of paper, when, as I say, a monastery looked something like this, This was the Dhamma Hall, this was the Dana Hall, these are the washrooms, gents, ladies, this is where the monks were to be, and this is where the men in monks were supposed to be. <laughs> this is naive plan number one. That school soon got scrapped. Because I don't think we were grounded in reality when we were toying with some of these ideas. But there was always good intention. You know, that there was always there. Without a shadow of a doubt, I can tell you that. That there was always there. How can we do good to people? That is why I'm saying, you know, I'm, it's very satisfying to see all of you like this. The fewer devotees there are here, the happier I am. So if you're a devotee, don't come back again. Hmm? Is that what I'm saying? I'm saying don't come back as a devotee. Do whatever you can to come into the family. We are all encompassing. We like, we like to be inclusive, not exclusive. Because we want to give the gift of Dhamma to everybody. The sasana is what everyone deserves. Not just one man or woman. Not just myself, not just Guru Hamaru. Every man and woman and child deserves the Buddha Sasana because after all, ladies and gentlemen, you know, that is what you seek, although you don't know it. You don't know that it is the Buddha Sasana you've been seeking all your lives until you found it. Then you realize this is what I was looking for. If I had a dollar for every time people listen to the Dhamma sermons and then they come back and tell me, Swami Nasa, this is what I was looking for. Isn't that the story that you all had to say? I was doing this, I was doing that, going to meditation classes, going to Abhidhamma classes, listening on the channels on the, on the internet, and then one fine day I heard this voice. And they said, Guru Thero, Guru Handru. And I heard that voice and I realized in that moment, that is what I was looking for. This just goes to prove the point. We are all looking for the same thing. So why aren't the rest of them here? They haven't heard that voice yet. That's why. Because that is what they're looking for. You know, even this ant that's on this desk, so you can't see from there, but I can. It is also looking for that voice. Unfortunately, although it can hear the voice, it doesn't know it's a voice. It just thinks it's a, it's a noise, not a voice. Because it doesn't have the intelligence to interpret these noises into voices and then make sense of them. If it did, believe you me, this, would be, this place would be infested by rodents, <laughs> ants, and all sorts of beasts. But we're doing a sermon here and the dogs are running around. They're not in here. But this is what they're looking for. When you and I were there as four-legged beasts, this is still what we were looking for.
but we just didn't have the merit, we didn't have the potential to turn those noises into voices. Today, you're capable of that. It truly is satisfying to see the transformation the sasana has had on all your lives. And you must all rejoice in that. Look at where you were, look at where you are now. <clears throat> Oftentimes, you know, we talk to you about Swami Nuhan says and the things they do, Anagarika Mahatyas, Anagarika Mahatmyas, and so on. Right? Lately I got this letter. It's not really a letter, but uh, I wanted to just get an idea about some of the things that are some of our Sri Shravikas do. Because I see them running around, no, not like headless chicken, but they're very busy. Busy doing what? Is a very valid question, isn't it? Because everyone's busy. Even this ant is busy. <laughs> Trying to find something for itself. You know, before the Buddha Sasana came into your lives, you were just as busy. There's no difference about, you know, there. But you were busy doing what? Everybody's busy. You know, busy bodies everywhere. But it's not a busy body that gets anywhere. Because the difference between how you were busy back then and busy now, ladies and gentlemen, is because back then you were busy to sustain yourself, to preserve yourself, to do things for yourself. That is why you always had to keep doing them. Because no one else is going to do it for you. If you want to fend for yourself, if you want to provide for yourself, then even God is on, not on your side. If you want to do for yourself, then God says, out, 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 out of paradise. Go sort yourself out. That's how they, the two of them got kicked out. Because they wanted to fend for themselves. But when they were subservient, when they had surrendered entirely to God, and God said, I will provide everything for you. You don't have to go begging. You don't have to go borrowing. You don't have to go stealing. Right? I will give you everything. But that was not enough for them. They wanted to provide for themselves. And look what happened. The original sin. <laughs> yes, it is true. That is the original sin. The sin at the root of all things is what? The need for self-preservation. It is the original sin. Everything else is an extension of that sin. Greed is an extension of that. Fear is an extension of that. Adultery is an extension of that. The original sin is his need to fend for oneself, is to look after yourself. But that is what you were doing before the Buddha-sasana came into your lives. That is what we were all doing. Ask me why I wanted to make a lot of money. Many years ago, that was because I wanted to be successful, I wanted to be rich, <clears throat> so that I could have claim to fame. I could tell people how successful and rich and wealthy I was and make a name for myself. 
See, who was the richest man in the Buddha's time? Who was the richest man in Jesus' time? Who was the richest man in Prophet Muhammad's time? You don't know, do you? Exactly. <laughs> What's the point of being rich then? They don't even remember your name after a while. But the Buddha didn't have a penny to his name and neither did Jesus. And the Prophet had not a dime to his name. But to this day, we talk about them. Because none of them did for themselves. You're only remembered by the service you render to others. Live, you know, this is like, like a mantra. Live by this, I tell you. I invite you, live by this. Live for others. On any occasion where you have to make a choice, hmm? and you are torn between these choices, do I do for myself or do I do for others? If I do for others, then I'm going to have to sacrifice something that is dear to me, near to me, makes me happy, whatever. right? But if I choose to do what I want to do for myself, then someone else will have to, have, will have to let go of something. They will have to take, get the short end of the stick. In those situations, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, choose service to others. That is what will always remain with you. Today we talk about Kakusan, the, the Buddha, but who was the richest man in his time? Nobody knows. From time to time, you know, they said Steve Jobs was the richest man in the world. Then they had uh, Bill Gates, they said was the richest man in the world. Now probably perhaps maybe Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, right? Sometimes they'll say Mark Zuckerberg is the richest man in the world. You know, from time to time, these people, they come and go, right? But the Buddhas, their names remain. Jesus will always be Jesus. They'll always know him for that, for who he was to others. Mahatma Gandhi will always be known for who he was to others. But he only became popular. He only, he only left a legacy once he became Mahatma. Before that, he was just a normal person who had a wife, had a family, and he provided for his family. But at some point he realized, I have a bigger family than this. This is not my family. My family is every man, woman and child who walk the surface of this land. So he fought for that. He fought in the way that he knew. So when I asked for some of the things our Srila Shavika Mahatmyas get up to, I got a list. A long list. That's a long list, isn't it? <clears throat> I'll read to you a couple of things on here. At the same time, what I want you to reflect on is, it seems like they're pretty busy. So no change there. Giving up your lay life and coming into the life of a Sila Shravika, not much has changed in terms of how busy you are. What matters is not that. What matters is busy doing what? 
Let me give you one example. It says cleaning and washing the toilets is one of the things that they are busy doing. Don't you think they used to do that before they became Sri Sravikas? Cleaning and washing toilets? Hmm? No? Sri Sravikas? I ask you. Did you not clean and wash toilets? Yeah, of course you did. Which one? Uh, that one. Did you ever get oh, even a word of praise for that? <clears throat> were, were, were those actions sublime enough that a member of the Mahasangha would appreciate you for that? You cleaned and washed toilets for how many years of your life? 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Your hair went gray washing toilets, right? Your back started to hurt washing and cleaning toilets. Your old limbs have become brittle washing and cleaning toilets. The same old toilet over and over and over again. You kept washing it. Maybe on your birthday you got a birthday card. Perhaps on Mother's Day you maybe got some flowers. That was it. You were only appreciated by one or two people at home. That's it. Did your visitors appreciate you? They came, to, they visited you and they walked into the washroom and said, oh, it's very nice. Who's the person who cleans and washes these toilets? I want to speak to her. I want to speak to her manager as well. <laughs> Did you get a single word of praise? Any credit for it? Any honor for it? No. Do you think you'll be remembered for having washed the toilet at home? Do you think you'll be remembered for that? Of course not. But this sermon will go online now. And it will be there for time eternal. You will be remembered forever. Because you have not just washed any old toilet. You have washed toilets, you have labored, you have shed sweat and tears on behalf of others. Not just the people that by law you are supposed to call your family. Not just them. Not just by convention the people you are supposed to call your family. But far beyond that. Everyone who seeks refuge in the Buddha Dhamma and the Sangha. You wash and clean the toilets for them. So that when they come in and they wish to listen to the Dhamma and free themselves from the burdens that bother them, they are able to do that comfortably. You go that extra mile. You, you, you make that effort. You take on that effort so that others can do it effortlessly. You will be remembered forever. Cooking in the kitchen. Hmm, let's talk about that one. How much cooking have you done by now? So much Swaminas have not had the time to do anything else. Hmm? 
wake up morning tea you have to do that breakfast you have to do that lunch you have to do that evening meal you have to do that and then there's something for a, for a small bite a snack before before bedtime <laughs> you have to do that how many meals have you cooked by now what recognition did you get for that i know you know as a mother as a wife you probably don't do it for recognition but i don't know you can say so but you know if you don't get a words appreciation sometimes you know if you don't get at least get a thank you now you know how that would have made you feel you know think about why they have something like this thing called a mother's day it's a real joke if you ask me because mothers never get appreciated so they have to put a day in the year so that mothers day mothers are recognized we don't celebrate mothers day yeah because every day is a mothers day we always talk about mothers we always love our mothers we always love not just our mothers not my mother anyone who wishes to be a mother to anybody we celebrate them we honor them motherhood is what we celebrate not my mother or your mother motherhood father's day <coughs> there's a day in the calendar on which you are supposed to go and say thank you to your father you know it's like these appointments like you forget things so therefore you make appointments now you have a diary you write down things because you forget right so in the same manner people forget what their fathers do for them they forget what their mothers do for them they forget what their teachers do for them so therefore there's a day in the calendar i mean it's fine you know at least that way it gets done but do you put an appointment in the calendar to have lunch do you no because that need is always there do you put an appointment in the calendar to do the things you like no you don't need that because that desire is always there but the things that you don't like the things that you don't feel are important you have to put appointments in your calendars so then think about why your mother's day your father's day the teacher's day is in the calendar for us every day is a teacher's day <laughs> we're always going on about teachers we're always going on about our mothers and fathers and how much they have done for us and how much they are still doing for us so i ask you again how much cooking have you done by this point you know these anagarika mahatmyas they were going to be they were going to do that for the for the rest of their lives for the next 20 30 40 50 60 years they were going to just keep on cooking breakfast lunch and dinner hmm? bld that's it <laughs> breakfast lunch and dinner that was going to be the story of their lives it's not about what you do it's why you do it today also they do this so as you know we come out means they help out in the kitchen they pass make gilampasa they make tea sometimes you know help out with the making whatever you know at the monastery in fact i don't i don't know some of the things that they do that's why i i have to get a list of you know what are some of these things that as you know we come out means do because you know they, they don't they don't do things and then they go around saying i do this i do this you know can i have a pay rise please <laughs> when do i get my promotion when do i get my paycheck can i get a pat on the back please because i've done this that and the other 
That is what you used to do. That's why they don't do it now. Doing things for honor, doing things for credit, doing things for acknowledgement. But now, they do things because they acknowledge others. They honor others. You know, there are people who have come to the monastery, they wish to listen to the Dhamma, they must be hungry. So we acknowledge them. Let's give them a meal. Let's give them some tea. Let's give them a biscuit. Let's help them make, make themselves comfortable. Let's ensure the washrooms are cleaned so that when they get here, you know, they can be in comfort, be at ease. All of this change has happened because the sasana has touched your lives. Today you don't think, you, you hardly think at all about yourselves. That is the practice that we are about, isn't it? The more you think about yourselves, the less the sasana has entered your lives. The less you think about yourselves, because you begin to re- understand that this self is purely a perception. It's not a real thing. It's only a perception in the mind. So once you recognize that, then you know it's like a ghost. If no one else sees it, and only you see it, right? then you understand that this is a ghost. So I, I shouldn't be bothered by it. There's something wrong with me, and that is why I see this ghost, when nobody else does. This self that you experience, do you think anyone else sees it? Hmm? You see your hand, everybody else sees that hand. But when you experience this self, when you perceive this self, does anyone else perceive that? Do they? No. I'll prove it to you. Think about your favorite item of food. Just think about it for a second. If you still have one. Hmm? Now ask the person sat next to you what it is that you thought. Do you think they'll be, they're going to be able to answer that? Can they answer this question? No, they can't answer this question because it is only yourself who knows this. And that is purely a perception. That's why nobody else will see it. But hold something in your hand and ask the person sat next to you. Do you see this? And they'll say, yes, I see it. Because this is real. But your perception of self, or the self itself is a fake... It's a fake creation of the mind. It's not real. <clears throat> That's why it's a, this, this lie is only real to you. That's why nobody else sees this. It's not just because they can't read your mind. It's because this sense of self only you perceive. Now, each man, woman and child in this room, every human being here will perceive a self. But that self that you perceive, you know, to you it's unique, isn't it? Nobody else will perceive that. Not in the way that you do. Because if, it, if they did, then what you are perceiving is not a self at all. Because this self should be unique. It's an identity. It is your identity. If someone else could perceive it the same way, then that doesn't be, it's, it's, you know, by virtue of that, it's not your identity. It's all fake. So the less you have to think about that, the more you can commit yourself and devote yourself in the service of others. Cleaning the monastery premises. Oftentimes I see them with these brooms sweeping the the roads and cleaning up for Saturday, particularly for Saturday, every Friday evening before they head home. With brooms and ankle brooms, they sweep the whole road up there. So that when people come in the following morning, 
they are they they can walk in and you know they they can be pleasantly impressed no dust dirt on the ground all this because when when it's 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 a mind that is rejoicing it's a mind that is happy that is in a pleasant state that can then be fed with the dhamma so there's a purpose behind all this it's not just because we want to have a clean monastery i mean that's good right but there are lots of clean monasteries out there <clears throat> pretty much every monastery must be a clean monastery but that's not the reason we do this that when you cleaned your house back then right you did so so that when people would come in they would be impressed by you as maybe the 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 person you know the housewife right or the people at home you know they'd be impressed by that they you like to be house proud right when people come home they they see what you've done right? and you they you you do you've done your upholstery you've done your curtains you've you know it's color matching colors and the the house is clean nice tidy right you expect that when they see me when they see the house they'll know that i've 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 been a good wife right <laughs> and and even if they don't appreciate it verbally they'll still think that you know i'm i'm a good i'm a good housewife i'm a good mother hmm? i'm a good wife look how the way i keep my house clean and tidy there's a need for an acknowledgement there we spoke about this a few weeks ago the that's why i say you know it's not what you do that has changed ladies and gentlemen it's the purpose you do it that has changed and in that purpose that change of purpose everything has changed entirely everything has changed because volition is everything the purpose you do it the reason you do something is the most important thing it's more important than what you do why you do is far more important <clears throat> helping out with decorations hmm so this in the dhamma hall preparing for the following day's program yesterday afternoon just randomly i came down for a visit just to see what was going on sometimes this monastery is too large i don't know what's happening on the other end <laughs> far too many things going on to keep track of everything so from time to time you got to take a tour in a few days time i'll need to i need this in a small mini bus or something <laughs> <clears throat> and so i could see our sila shavika mahatmyas and sila vasi mahatmyas preparing for the sermon there were some anagarika mahatmyas as well you know each one being an example to the other that's what's great about this place everybody's an example to to another so it's not like you know sila shavika mahatmyas are better or worse than sila vasi mahatmyas or the anagarika mahatmyas are better or worse than anybody else it's not like that everyone is single purposely doing the best they can for their salvation therefore when you put that intention on the scale everyone weighs the same one person may be able to commit their whole life others may be a week but not a weekend maybe there are others who can only do two days a week if that is the best they can do then they do that so when you you know a, a man who gives his his house and his land 
say a hundred acres of it. Right? They, they give it freely to some for charity. Then there's a child who has a chocolate in his hand. Toing and froing, he considers, do I give it, don't I give it? If I give this, then I won't have another for myself. But in the end, he gives it. Who do you think has given more? Who, who do you think has given less? Hmm? Less and more is not in the size of what has been given, is it? It's what you have given up, not given to. Because when you give to, there's a person giving, there's a person receiving, and there's an object that is being given. I give this to you. But when you give up, there doesn't have to be a recipient. Matters not what the object is, how big or small it is, what value it has, economic value, matters not. In that way, they're all the same. That is why I say, you know, such a tremendous change that has happened in people's lives. All because the sasana has entered your lives. And the Dhamma has helped you to look at this fantasy that you've been fostering in your mind. This thing called the self. That, yeah, and you re- you've begun to realize that all this effort that I have put in, this, all this abhisankara that you've been putting in to preserve the self, to sustain the self, to nourish the self has always and forever will be meaningless. Honestly, you know, now that you're beginning to understand the Dhamma, ladies and gentlemen, you know, why have you started committing your life to the, to the path, to the noble path? Is it because Guru Handra says so? Hmm? Why have you committed whatever amount you can commit to the sasana, right, to, to this practice? Why have you made that commitment? Is it because the Swami Nansa says so? Is it because the Buddha said so? Or is it because you're actually beginning to realize that what you were doing earlier was useless. Hmm? That is conviction. Initially you must have come to a sermon out of faith. Someone said, there's a good sermon, you should come along, listen to it. Initially. Then you came to the sermon. Came to the first sermon, came to the second sermon, came to the third sermon, began to slowly but gradually understand what was being said, and then you began to realize that this this you know, the sustaining of the self, the preserving the self, the nurturing the self, all this effort has been meaningless. How much value would you give to the last 20 years of your life? Let's just say you had to hire someone, okay? You're going to hire someone. <clears throat> this person, this person that you're going to hire will do everything that you are supposed to do. All right. So, for instance, they'll do the chores at home, so you don't have to. And whatever they do, you can reap the benefits of it. So, for instance, so if, if, they, if they practice the path to Nibbana, you are the one who gets to go to Nibbana. This is a hypothetical example, but I just want you to imagine this. Okay? If they cook, you get to eat. If they clean, then you get to be clean. Right? So you don't even have to go take a shower. They'll do that. Once they take the shower, it's as if you had had the shower. Does that make sense? So they're the ones who are doing the actions, but you're the ones who are reaping the rewards of it. Okay? So this is a hypothetical example. Right? Now here's my question. So now, you don't have to attend Nibbana. They will go to the sermons. They will do the meditations. They will do the practicing. Right? And then eventually they will attain. They will do the hard work, but you will attend the Nibbana. 
All right? So the question is this. You're going to hire someone today, and for the 20 years from here on, they're going to do the things that you did for the last 20 years. But you have to pay this person. All right? So you're going to hire this person. I'll give you two people. One person, they're going to live the last 20 years of your life. Then the other person is going to live the next 20 years of your life. Make sense? Two people. One's going to live the last 20 years of your life. This other person is going to live the next 20 years of your life. Who are you willing to pay? You have to pay them though. You've got to pay them. And of course, when you make payment, you have to think about how much the, the work that they're doing is, is of benefit to you, right? You, that's what you have to consider. If you hire someone and they do some work for you, you decide how much to pay depending on how much value they've added to your life. Yeah? So this person, these two people, one's going to live the last 20 years, the other's going to live the next 20 years of your life. Which one are you going to pay? Hmm? How much would you pay? I'll give you, you have uh, $10,000. You have $10,000. All right, and just to make it easier for you, 20 years, last 20 years, next 10 years. Not next 20 years, next 10 years. Okay, so half the time. Now, just to make it easier for you. So one person is going to live the last 20 years of your life. That's person A. Person B is going to live the next 10 years of your life. Not the next 20 years, only the next 10. At the end of that 10, you have to pay them again to live the next 10. Okay? And I give you $10,000. In what proportion are you going to pay these two people? They come up to you and say, we are happy to do this service for you, but you have to pay us. Right? I will live the last 20 years of your life. The next person says, but I can only live the next 10 years of your life. In what proportion are you going to split this 10,000 and pay these two people? Tell me. How much are you going to pay person 1 and how much are you going to pay person 2 or person B? How much would you give person A? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> how much would you pay person B? All of it. And then some. But person A, nothing, huh? Any last-minute changes before I say the next thing to you? <laughs> I want to have another go. Best of three, maybe. How much are you willing to pay person A, who's willing to live 20 years of your previous life, versus person B, who's only going to live half that time, but the next 10 years? You're telling me that you wouldn't pay a cent to the person who's going to live the next last 20 years, but you will give everything to the person who's going to live the next 10. Right? They will, they'll do all the work. So you can stay at home doing, you know, you can sleep, whatever, you can do whatever you like. They will come and practice the path because that's what you're going to be doing for the next 10 years. Versus the other person, they will live the last 20 years. They'll relive it. Right? So that last 20 years will be returned to you. But you can't do anything. You can't then go and practice the path. <laughs> those, those 20 years that you lost, you'll just have to be at home asleep. Right? But if whatever money they, they earn will again be returned to you. Right? Whatever, if they build a house, that will be yours. 
If they buy some land, that will be yours. If they buy a car, that will be yours. Just as the, the cars and the houses and the money that you've earned over the last 20 years is yours today, right? In the same way, they'll do that for you. You just They'll do the labor. And you're willing to pay how much? Nothing. So then here's the question. Question 1.2. What is the value add of the last 20 years of your life to your present day? Now, uh, you can't tell me, Swaminas, I learned English. That's why I get to understand the sermon today. Hmm? I, I went to school, so I, underst- I understood language. That's why I get to understand. You, you know, you can't say that. <clears throat> not, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about traveling the world. I'm talking about going to restaurants. I'm talking about going watching films, going to listen to music, right? I'm talking about the things that you did to enjoy yourselves. How much value has that added to your life? When today you realize that the self is just a falsehood. Just think about this. You've been cheated your entire life. Your entire life you've been cheated. It's like you've always thought that there's another person at home. And so you cooked for them, you washed, their, you washed for them, you cleaned the house, right? They have a room. Imagine you have this, this, this mental illness whereby you think that there's another one at home, another person at home. <clears throat> so there's you and there's another person at home. So when you build a house, you always build two bedrooms. If you go rent somewhere, you have to rent two rooms, one for you and one for this other imaginary person. Hmm? But you don't know this. You think they're there. So when you cook, you have to cook for them as well. right? So you cook for them, you serve for them, and you go and leave it in their in the bedroom. And then you go back and later and you say, have you not eaten today either? Oh, what a waste. Don't be like this, eat. And you take the food, you throw it in the bin, but the next day you cook again. <laughs> you have this imaginary friend in your life. You clean the room for them. You run the water. You know, run run a bath for them so that they, you know they can go and get them get a shower. You know, like uh, baby Natasha, <laughs> all over. Remember, we talked about this long time ago, baby Natasha. See, now you begin to realize this self that on whose behalf you've been doing all these things, pleasure, delight, you know, going after all these sensual pleasures, all of that was completely and utterly meaningless. Would you not wish to, to, to regain those years if, if you could? Hmm? Wouldn't you? And actually do something meaningful with them. This is because of the Buddha Sasana. At least now you have come to that understanding and realization. So that you can save, you know, no point crying after spilled milk, of course, but at least you can save what is left from here on. But 99.99% of all people in this world, you know, they just go in, they just go in a rat race. They have no idea that what they're doing is meaningless. I think just think about how this world uh, you know, operates. Right from time to time, you'll get to hear about things that are going on in this world. And if you ever get to hear the news, if you ever get to read the newspaper, right, you know what's going on out there. 
uh, people they call themselves like the um, you know presidents and prime ministers and ministers and you know people who rule the world and then people who, who are trying to make money right? people who are trying to work on developing technologies right people who are trying to find treatments for cancer and all sorts right they're they're really you know striving to do something but none of them understand what the real problem is none of them get the crux of the problem so ultimately all in vain yes i know it's possible that one day they'll find a treatment for cancer maybe right i don't know but let's just assume that they will they'll find a treatment for cancer well don't you think the next thing will come along after that then they'll say that was cancer a now we have cancer type b like they had the, you know the covid right every every year there'll, there'll be a new variant right so they'll say okay, that original variant of cancer we found a treatment for but now there's a new variant and for that we have to start doing the research again there's no end to this there's only one end that is has to be the alternate end where you begin where you realize that all this is done to sustain a falsehood all this is done to nourish a false self it's only when you understand that when you realize that do the things that you do in your life from there on begin to make sense see now you know that listen to this dhamma sermon coming along to the coming along to the sermons you know and practicing the path by like dedicating a part of your life to this just think about it you know there are those among you who maybe let's say sila shravaka mahatma right dedicates two days of his week to do the sasana only two because they've got other duties responsibilities and obligations as a result of which the other five they have to invest in in that yeah don't you have regrets about that the fact that you you cannot commit yourself entirely think about why that is right the, yes of course you can do the two days and you're happy about that but the other five the other five that you can't commit towards the, doing the buddhist asana why do you have regrets about that why are you not happy about that because you realize that five is meaningless <laughs> you realize that that five is pointless because what you're going to be doing in that five is just you know eating sleeping drinking meaningless fulfilling duties responsibilities obligations yes i get that part i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that we should you know shana you know shrug our shoulders and just you know ignore all our duties and responsibilities that's not what i'm saying but what i'm saying is what's the point you got to do it but pointless have to do it but pointless your mother is poorly right you look after her you tend to her yeah you 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 give her your her meds you give her food like wash her clean her do everything isn't she going to die anyway how can he speak like that isn't she going to die anyway because one my question so i mean how how ruthless you are how heartless you are don't you have to stay at home and look after your mother if i stayed at home i could have looked after her i could have washed her i could have fed her and waited until she died now i'm giving her the medicine of deathlessness which one do you think is more sublime
Which one do you think is more noble? Stay at home, clean her poo poo, feed her, walk her to the kitchen, walk her around, right, when she is poorly and she can't get herself up on her two feet, and be by her side and wait until she pulls her last breath, right, and then shuts, shuts down entirely, and then claim that I have done all I can as a good son for her, hmm? when anyone else could have done that. You can hire a nanny to do that. Or come to the sasana, understand the Dhamma, and further my understanding, further my, my knowledge, further my wisdom in the Dhamma, and then using that, I help her to become deathless. So that she doesn't have to go through that again. Because doing it once doesn't mean having done it all. Doing it once is only doing it for this time. It's going to happen again and again and again and again. So, you know, some people might ask a question, you know, if I'm the only child in the family, should I go into the sasana? People might have this question. If, if someone is the only child in the family, should they go into the sasana or should they stay at home and look after their parents? Don't ask me that question because you're not going to be happy with the answer you get. <laughs> well, if you shouldn't be asking me, then definitely don't ask Guru Hamra. <laughs> Here's what I think. We all have a duty towards our parents. And if you love them, help them fix themselves for good. Because they're going to die anyway. All you can do is delay death. Stop death and show me if you can. Hmm? Stay at home and earn, earn as much as you can. Don't even stop to eat or to sleep. Right? Or to wash yourself. So don't, don't stop to do anything. Just earn. Just keep on earning. Keep on earning. Keep on earning. And use all that money to treat your mother. Right? Build a palace for her. Not one, but three. So that in the summer she can be in one palace. In the winter she can be in another palace. And in autumn she can be in another palace. Hmm? Go and get her the best medical aid there is out there. The best treatments. Find the best consultants in the world and have them standing by her side. If ever she just coughs, right, just a cough, right, a whole medical team will surround her. Hmm? Stop her from dying and show me. And stop her from going through that again and show me. Then I'll be impressed. She's going to die. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> She's going to die. All you can do is delay death. Death can only be delayed. Once you're born, death can only be delayed. It can't be stopped. Not in that manner. So, ask me. I, I dare you. Ask me. I'm the only child in the family, Swami Master. Hmm? If I truly love my parents, what do you think I should do? Stay at home and look after them or come to the sasana? Don't have me spell it out to you. Is it not obvious? I suggest you stay at home if you can stop her from dying. Then stay at home. Not just dying this time, but dying again.
Like, yeah, and besides, you know, perhaps you'll be at home and you look after her, right? And you can be the best child to your mother, very loving and caring, right? You won't even let her lift a finger. You're there to do everything for her. But she dies and she's born again. Are you going to be there again? Can you guarantee that you'll be there again to look after her? No, right? So you have no guarantee that this service that you give her will continue. Maybe for the next 10 years you can look after her. After that, what's going to happen? She's going to go. Poof. Right? And then she's going to be somewhere else. She's going to be daughter, a mother to somebody else. So what guarantee do you have that that daughter, that son, will look after her like you? But here's my argument. I have good arguments, you know. Sometimes I'm impressed by them myself. Here's what you can do, right? Engage her in meritorious acts. Share with her the sasana. Teach her how to be a mother not just to you, but to many people. Hmm? Teach her how to be a mother to not just one person, two children, right, three children, not just her biological children, but to the human race. Here's what will happen then. Even if she dies, and if she's born again as a human being, because she has given to many, she will get from many. But if she only gives to you as her child, she better hope that when she's born again, you will be there to repay those debts. Do you get the logic? If you get her to think more broadly and stop this narrow-minded thinking about my child and I have to look after him. My child, so I have to look after her. I have to protect my child. This self-based thinking, very selfish thinking really. That's why it's called selfish thinking. Self-ish thinking. This selfish thinking, you know, you're only doing yourself disservice. If you give to one, you'll get from one. Give to many, you get from many. One of the other things this Srila Shavika Mahatmya does. At our Noble Hearts program, we have these little bhattas, little kids. And they've organized themselves there and they have the teachers who go and teach them. Right? So we give them a good education. But there is also this thing called a mother role. So one of one of our Sila Shavika Mahatmas or Anagarika Mahatmas will go there and be a mother to them. Not one, sometimes several. Go and be a mother to them. So that involves everything. Maybe sometimes washing their clothes and making their beds and you know talking to them and seeing that they're okay. You know, patting their heads and just having a general conversation with them, Puta, how are you doing today? What's up? You know, is everything okay with you? So that they feel that they haven't, they haven't, they don't have their mother around with them. They, they don't feel that way. So in fact, it's called the mother role. That's the name that they've come up with, mother role. So this is one of the duties that she has. Being a mother, not to one child, not to two, not to three, to all of them. But before the, before the sasana happened to your life, how many were you a mother to? <clears throat> and who who appreciated you for that? 
Mother's Day, you got a card. Maybe sometimes, uh, you know, maybe a, a bouquet of flowers, maybe a box of chocolates. That's what you got on Mother's Day. But for being a mother, do you think the Mahasanga will ever appreciate you? Just for being a mother? We'll appreciate you when you give up your child to the sasana. <laughs> that we'll appreciate. Because then a mother stops being selfish and becomes selfless. Right? Without thinking about oneself, they think about others. You know, I often wonder, when we have this uh, ordination ceremonies at the monastery, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes you, know, you see mothers you know, cry and they weep. It's very natural because sometimes it's only the child who's Listen to the sermons, not the mother. But And even if the mother does, right, it takes a long time for a mother to let go of that I am the mother, she is the child, he is the child feeling. Okay, It takes a long time for that to happen. <coughs> because it's, it's ingrained in the mind. right? So for that clashes, those defilements to be uprooted, you know, it takes a lot of practice. Mothers cry because they feel they are giving their children to the sasana. In that sentence, I'm not trying to emphasize the word there. I'm emphasizing the word to. When the mother's preparing her child to go to Australia, to go to UK, go to Canada, right? The mother doesn't feel the same grief. Because here's what she thinks then. I'm, I'm giving Australia to my son. That's what she thinks. When she sends the child to have a good education somewhere, right? I'm giving Yale University to my child. I'm giving Harvard to my child. But when it comes to the sasana, I'm giving my child to the sasana. <laughs> That's where the problem is. This is wrong. You can't give anything to the sasana, you give the sasana to them. So mothers here, who gave up your children to the sasana, please come to your senses. You never gave up your child to the sasana, you gave the sasana to your child. That's what happened. Now when you think about it in those terms, you know, you're not losing out. Your children are not losing out. They're gaining what they have and even more that is what is truly happening. So, you know, when you realize, I'm giving my child whatever he wants, the thing he wants, the thing he deserves, hmm? then you don't feel like crying, you don't feel like weeping, you don't feel like losing out, you feel like you've got much more than what you had. <clears throat> Do you agree? But when you feel that you are giving your child up, remember, you know, this, again, this happens when you get married. You know this. Go back and go take a walk down memory lane. Right? That day when, you're, when you got onto the poor world. Right? Father and mother, they came up to you. Right? Holding your hand. Gives your hand to the, to the boy. Hmm? And then pouring that water over your fingers, right? Do you, did you, do, you, do you remember seeing their faces? 
What, what was on, in their faces? Grief, tears of sorrow. Because what they felt was they are giving up their child. Right? This child that they doted on, like the apple of their eye, right? looked after them, cared for them and loved them. Now I'm giving up my child to somebody else. They're going to take my child and go away. So when the mother feels that way, now she's feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm giving my child away. That's why that day the mother cried. So why does the mother cry when she gives the child to the sasana? She feels the same way. I'm giving my child up to the sasana. That is not true. It's fine, you know, when giving up your child to another man. Yes, you're giving up. <laughs> Probably never going to get back again. At least alive. <laughs> never going to get them back again. But in the, where the sasana is concerned, you're not giving your child up to the sasana. You're giving the sasana to your child. I want all parents to think that way because, you know, it's, this is not just fooling yourself to think this way. This is the truth. My mother gave the sasana to me. She didn't give me up to the sasana. She gave me the, the freedom to choose real happiness. That is what she gave me. She gave me the path to ultimate bliss. That is what she gave me. She didn't, she didn't give me up. She gave me something. And I want all mothers to understand this. So I was making a, a point earlier. Right? See, this Sri Shavika Mahatmya, she's, she has committed herself as a mother to many young children. And I encourage you to do the same. Help your mothers to become a mother to as many people as possible. Not just to you, because if they're just a mother to you, then they better hope that even in the next birth they're going to have you to look after them. Because if it's only you they've given. Remember the Buddha and the sweet cake? How he, was, he, could, he, he had no claim to it. That lady who came and dropped the sweet cake in the Buddha's arms bowl, she came back to retrieve it, didn't she? Why was that? You know, then you'll understand my point here. That the Buddha looked in his infinite wisdom and realized this lady I'd never given anything to. So I am not due to receive anything from her. Ah, now think about having understood that. Think, <laughs> reflect on what I've just explained to you. If your mother only thinks about you, right? She's all she cares about is you, your well-being, your you know, your health, your wealth, your goodness. You know, whatever happens to you is all she cares about. Has no care in the world about other children. If she's so focused on you, so so devoted to you, so dedicated to you, you as a child. <coughs> must be more considerate about that. You must, you must think, that, you know, what harm she's doing to herself. You're on the path to Nibbana, right? So chances are you're not going to come back again as a human being. Even, even if you do, maybe into very different circumstances. But whereas she, she, you know, she's just concerned about you. She can't give you up. She wants you to be with her, right? She's just so focused on you. Are you well? Are you happy? Right? There are other children dying in this world, she doesn't care a bit. There are other people suffering in this world, she doesn't care. Not her concern, because that they're not her children. You know, this, I'm giving you good advice, ladies and gentlemen, if you really love your, your parents, and I'm sure you do, help them think about all children as their children. Not just you. Because if they only do for you, then you, bet, you had better be there to look after her in the next, in the next birth as well. <clears throat> 
because you only get what you've given. But look at this Sila Shavika Mahatmina. She's a mother to many. She's a mother to all. In fact, she's creating young children who will go on to be mothers and fathers to others. It's a chain reaction. And she's the catalyst. So help your parents in that way. Help them to come out of this self-based thinking. Help them with that. If you truly love them, and, you know, and I know you do, and you, and you know how much they've done for you, it's now time for them to stop thinking about just you and start thinking more compassionately. Metta karuna mudita upeksha. It is said that, a, that parents only have that towards their children, to that degree. Right? But the Aramaha Sangha, anyone who has understood the Dhamma, right? wherever they are, to that, that, to that degree, they have these four, the four Brahmika bows they are called, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Anupeka, they have it towards all sentient beings. They don't feel that only my child is my child. Everyone's a child. So then you give to all. When you give to all, who do you get from? All. So for any hope that in your next birth, the mother who has been so attentive to you, loved you and has devoted her life to you, for any hope that she will be fine and well in her next birth, help her to stop focusing on you as her child and start thinking about other children as well. Think about all people as her own children. These are the words of advice I give to my mother. I tell her, Amma, you don't need to worry about me anymore. I'm fine. But I need you to be a mother to all. In the same way that you were able to love me and, and be compassionate towards me and kind to me and generous to me, I want you to extend that to all. It's going to be difficult, yes, I understand, because it will, it will be. Right? Because for that to happen naturally, you need to understand the Dhamma. When you realize that there's no such thing as my children and another, another woman's children, right? until then, you, you feel that way. This is again self-based thinking. To come out of this way of thinking, you have to understand the Dhamma. And then you realize all there are are minds and bodies. Conventionally, we give them names. And if a mind is suffering, a mind is suffering. It matters not whether that is my mind or somebody else's mind. Right? Or whether it is my son or somebody else's son. But for you, for you to be able to think in that way, you have to come out of that self-based thinking. So that's why help them. Honestly, if you love your parents, help them to understand at least a little bit of the Dhamma so that they're not so focused on just you alone. You know that their fate, if they, if they continue to be that way, right? They're going to die and they're going to come back looking for you. People will always come back to, to attend to unfinished business. They always keep coming back. If you have left something unfinished, you will come back to do it. That is why sansara works in that way. In sansara, we never achieve happiness, right? So you keep coming back to do what? Try and achieve happiness. That's why you keep coming back. That's why an arahat doesn't come back. Because they have achieved happiness. It's finished, done. So you don't come back, you only come back for unfinished business. But once the business is finished, that's it, you don't come back again. That is why sansara works in the way it does. 
So why were you born in this birth? Because you had unfinished business from last time. <laughs> right? Maybe you were human and maybe you lived for a hundred years. Hundred years you strived for happiness. You did this, that and the other. You did everything you've done in this birth as well. You ate, you went places, you were with friends, you were with family, right? you went on trips, you went on holidays, right? you did the things that you like to do, enjoy, have fun, parties, the lot. And guess what? <laughs> You've come back again. <laughs> What's the blooming point? You've come back again. Just look at yourselves. I speak on my behalf as well, okay, when I say this. These words run through my mind before they are uttered as words to you. So this is advice for me as much as it is advice for you. As I say this just in case you feel that I'm trying to talk you down. It's not that. We love the sinner. It's not the sin. Just look at yourselves. Unfinished business. That's why you're back. Why do you keep going back to work? Unfinished business. So finish your business this time around at least. For that you need to understand what your business is. What is your business? You've got to understand that first. What is my business? <clears throat> is it making money? Those who make money will come back to keep on making more money. Trust me. It's like a game of snake and ladders. Like, even if you climb up to square number 99, if you hit a snake there, you're going to come back all the way and start from square one. Making money is not the business you're here for, but people think that is what they're here for, to make money. Ask some people what they want to achieve in their lives. I want to become the richest man alive. Get my name on the Forbes magazine. The Forbes list of richest people. You know, these, are the, these are some of the dreams that people have. I want to be the person who has the biggest house. I want to be the person who has the biggest private jet. I want to be the person who has the most luxurious car. All unfinished business. Because how can there ever be a biggest house? A biggest house can only be in this moment. In the next moment, there's one bigger than that. So they have to come back for that. How can there ever be a richest man? That's why in, you know, when they publish this list, they say the, biggest, no, the richest man in 2023. Hmm? The richest man in 2023. Do they have a list of arahants in 2023? <laughs> why, what happens to the arahant in 2024 then? <laughs> Goes back to become production? No. Once an arahant? Always an Arahant. But once the richest man alive? Ah, you can't complete that sentence. Only that once. Only that once. What about if you want to be the most educated person? Hmm? I want to be the most educated person. You know how science is, you know how knowledge is, right? Every time people keep, they keep on exploring, right? 
perhaps by now they can see the end of the Milky Way, right? But in 10 years time, they'll say, you know, we can see the next galaxy. So everything there's in the next galaxy, you have to learn now. Because someone else will do before you do. And then they'll be the most educated person. So if you want to keep your book in the Guinness World Records, you have to keep coming back. Because if you pump something up, you've got to maintain it. Only things that settle down are at rest. Anything that is pumped up, it is not at rest. You've got to keep it there. See, this, I have to keep it up here. Because there's energy in here. It's called potential energy. There's energy contained within this object. So therefore, I have to keep supplying that. I have to keep it here. I have to maintain it here. But if you put it down, this is, say, imagine this is reference, right? So this is zero. Zero level. You put it down, it's down. You don't have to maintain it. So if, if, you've, if you've achieved anything in your life by pumping yourself up, If you want to climb the, the tallest ladder, just be assured that tomorrow there will be one taller than that. What is it, the longest wall in the world? For now. For now. You know, there's always this race to build, the, build great skyscrapers, right? Right? Every year, they come up with another one. For a short period of time, you can claim to have uh, the tallest skyscraper. And countries will often fight for this, for that prestige, for that honor. Uh, in our country, we have the tallest building, the tallest man-made structure. Every year, there will be a fight for it. And <laughs> the, the other day, someone showed me uh, like the tallest statues ever built. Hmm? It's something like this. Now these figures may will not be accurate because I only go by a faint memory that I have. So this is the timeline. Okay. So initially they built they built a statue of the Buddha. Hmm? That was the tallest at the time. Next year they built a statue of Jesus Christ. Now you can see why I'm laughing. Next year they build another statue of the Buddha. <laughs> what do you think happened after that? Uh, although you can't see from back there, this is one hundredth of an inch taller than the other one. It is the tallest now. Buddha, Jesus, Buddha, Jesus. Next up, Buddha. Can you see the unsaid tale? Unspoken. Hmm? There's an unspoken tale that's running behind all this. Who's better? Surely, Jesus is better, right? No. Buddha. 
you just you know when you get home just do some you know google search or something and you you see what i'm saying right over the last several years right every time like mostly these these figures are religious figures religious figures which one's bigger see how people understand virtue how how people think about big right if it's if the statue is big then the buddha is big if the statue is big then jesus is big i mean fortunately the people they don't have figures of allah if they were hmm? imagine that if they if 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 in the in in islam also they had allowed to create these statues right because in in that faith they, they don't make statues but if they did right there'll be another contender here is this what religion is for i ask you why does this have to be bigger than the other one why does why does why does the buddha's statue have to be bigger than jesus's statue if the two of them were here right now what do you think they would say if buddha and jesus were here oh we have another one krishna shiva every uh, biggest statue in the world goes into the guinness world records do you think that's what they came into this world for do you think that's what buddha's message was You know, this is a very lay attitude, is it not? This is a very lay attitude, which none of you have now. Although you live a lay lifestyle, you are a monk by attitude. This is a very lay attitude. The bigger, the better. So you know, this is a competition. That's what I see. My personal interpretation of this is: this is a competition. That's why it's always religious figures. I mean, you know, it's good. <laughs> Got nothing against that, right? If they can make a big Buddha statue, then fair enough. You know, you can see it from from the moon, perhaps in a few days' time. Next time, you know, you probably you can <laughs> go to the moon, and then from there you can offer your flowers <laughs> in that direction. <laughs> But the Buddha that I know is not one who would have condoned this kind of behavior. I think he would have said, you know, create me in the hearts and minds of others because he said your dhammam pasati so mampasati. One who has seen the dhamma has seen me. It is not in looking at a big statue you've seen me, it's by seeing the dhamma you've seen me. Then I know this this attitude you'll see everywhere. Like how big should this the, the pagoda be? How big do you think we should make our pagoda? You know, there's one being constructed right now. Here's what we should do, right? We should go around the country and find out how big the biggest one is and then make it just a little bit bigger than that. That's the way to stand out, isn't it? If you had a bell tower, 
it should be the tallest one. Hmm? Have a dhamma hall, now we are making some plans to prepare a dhamma hall because there's not enough room for everyone. So how should how big should the dhamma hall be? As big, I was already say bigger than the biggest dhamma hall, or big enough. Big enough. That's how big big should be. Big enough. How big should your house be? Big enough. Enough for what? Enough for what it's there for. Now, if this were this was built so that you know actually astronauts could actually you know worship the statues from where they were, then fair enough because then it's big enough for them. That's what it's there for. Like the Hajj, for instance, right? You know, Muslims when they worship, right, they have to turn in that direction, and and then that's the way they make their worship. So if they could see the Hajj from wherever they are, that's all the better. Now, if that were the case, then it has to be big enough so that people could see it from wherever they are. But what's what's the point? You know what's going on here? I think there's something else going on here, and that's my personal interpretation. But what I'm saying is, none of us should be like that. We need to have a very different attitude. Big should only be big enough. Your houses should only be big enough. Big enough so that, well, now as monks, as those who have committed ourselves to the practice of the path, right? Our house, our shelter should be big enough so that when it rains, right, the rainwater don't, doesn't wet our knees after we sit down for meditation. That's big enough. When the sun is shining bright, it doesn't fall on our body, the, the sun rays, and, and heat the body up. When it doesn't scorch us, right? That should, that's big enough. If the rain doesn't wet you, that's big enough. How much should you, how big should your meal be? How many courses? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I mean, where's the limit? You've seen those large banquets? And you go in there and, you know, you can, you can need a telescope to see what's on the other end of the table. <laughs> how big should the dining, dining table be? Big enough. But the, there's a good question to ask. How much is enough? If you ask the mind, the mind has no limits. Because the mind is, you know, it has limitless potential, right? The mind has no limits to how much it wants. Because wanting is, un- is limitless. Needs are limited. Because needs are always there to fill a void. A want is a void. That the mind creates. So when you're hungry, you just need enough to fill your stomach. Actually, not fill it. You know, one third of it is enough. When you don't feel hunger and you know you've taken enough food to sustain your body, that's enough. So every need, just have a think about it. You know, every need, there's a limit. Every need, there's a limit. How many clothes do you need? Versus how many clothes do you want? Which one has a limit? The need or the want? The need has a limit, but the want has no limit. How many arms bowls do you need versus how many arms bowls do you want? <laughs> See? How many bedrooms do you need versus how many bedrooms do you want? So now go back, go back to again to your lay lives and see when you built your house, right? How big did you build it? Was it as big as it needed to be or as big as you wanted it to be? Think about it. How many washrooms do you need? 
Can you go to two at once? No. You can only go to one at once. So how many washrooms do you need? One. But how many do you do you want? Well, for that, you have to go find out how many other people have in their homes. You have to go, you have to read the magazines and see what the latest trends are. Right? Is it one bathroom per, per room? Is it one bathroom per person at home? Is it one bathroom per floor? You've got to, you've got to study now. You've got to go and find out how many bathrooms you know, is, is the right number. But every time it will keep changing, of course. You know, there will be some who will hold the title of having the biggest home in the world. And they'll be very proud of that. But because it's an unfinished business, guess where they're going to go after they're dead? They're going to come back. Why? To, to build the biggest home. They'll keep coming back for unfinished business. That's why I urge you folks, when you die, don't have any unfinished business. <laughs> this, this is one of the best pieces of advice I can give you. Don't die with unfinished business. If you have unfinished business, don't die. If you're going to die, ensure that you're finished, your business is done. <laughs> Otherwise, you will come back. Hmm? If you have a relationship with someone, whatever that relationship might be, mother-child relationship, father-daughter relationship, husband-wife relationship, hmm? best friends relationship, I don't mean noble friends, I'm talking about best friends, best friend relationship, enemy relationships, love is as, as bad as hate, right? the same thing goes. All these relationships, you'll always keep coming back to finish that unfinished business. That's why it's all these people, they keep coming back. You know, people want to ask, you know, why, why do people, you know, keep coming back? People keep coming back to finish unfinished business. So who are those who don't come back? Those whose finished business is done. They have no more business to do. Because if you have no business in this world, the world doesn't keep you. It expels you. Because you are of no relevance to this world. Your existence to this world is, is, is not productive. If you're in this world, folks, you have to produce something that is worldly. That's the deal. You know, it's like a company, right? To be hired and to remain hired, right? To, be, to, to remain an employee of a business, you have to be productive to that company, shouldn't you? So if they, if, otherwise you, they're made redundant. You know the term. They're given a redundancy package and then they're let go. Redundant. Another hunt doesn't produce anything to this world. They don't produce anything. All they do is consume what has already been produced. How lazy. They just eat, 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 eat. They don't produce anything. They're only consumers. They're not producers. So now actually another hunt is the best consumer. If you ask me, we are consumer come producer. So if you're a producer, then the world loves you because they want people to produce. Production is the name of the game. You've got to keep producing. So if you're here, you've got to keep producing. And if you want to keep producing, you can come back here. Become an arahant so that you no longer produce, you only consume. You have no place here. Like any co good company, would let someone off if all they do is consume and not produce. 
right? The day where you stop producing and all you do is consume, out. We have no need for you again. This production is jati, separation. See, how, how was this produced? Just think about it. Nothing in this world can be produced if not for jati. Because jati is separation. See, there was matter in this world, right? Someone combined that matter and produced this. In fact, they separated a mass of matter. They separated it into a certain shape and molded it into a certain shape. And you got this. This was produced. So, jati. Separation. Becoming. This has now become because of jati. Look at the room, scan the room. Everything in here is a product of jati. Everything on you is a product of jati. Your teeth, product of jati. This is all separation. Because all there is, is just energy. Pure energy. That pure energy, when it's put together in a certain configuration, now you have it in separate shapes and forms. Through raga, dvesha and moha, desire, aversion and delusion, you keep them in that shape. These are the bonds. That's why they call them the bonds, the triple bond. Remember the bonds of fire, the desire, the bonds of aversion and the bonds of delusion? We, we spoke about this in the past. These are the bonds. These bonds keep these things in that shape, in that order, in that configuration. That's why once the bonds are released, energy is just released. So your karmic energy is just energy that is, that is bound by Raga, Desha and Moha. You know, once you become an Arahant, this is your karmic energy. Right? The same thing that Guru Hanur explains as karma jara, right? the uh, karmic strands, right? these are your, your karmic energy. <coughs> Here is also, this is also energy. But the difference between energy out there and the energy in here, it, this is all bound together. It's all, it, 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 this is like a balloon, right? Through raga, desha and moha. This, is, this energy is held, to, held together. So it cannot release. So because it's held together, this is like a funnel. So therefore, energy in here is only going to come out this way. And so it comes to you. So by you, I mean the force that is holding this, this, these bonds together is the recipient of the energy that is within this. So that is this karmic energy. But this is also energy. But this energy is the same energy in here, except it's in this form and held together by Ragadesha and Moha. So let go of these bonds. Let go of Raga, let go of Dvesha, and let go of Moha. And then this, this balloon or this, this shape can no longer sustain and therefore what happens to this energy? It's just released. Otherwise one would ask the question, right? So if an Arahant why, when an arahant dies, does an ar- doesn't an arahant chitta come come back into being? You know, it's a valid question to ask, isn't it? 
because when arahant chitta is just a chitta that has no karma in it it doesn't do karma no ignorance no attachment fine right so say someone becomes an arahant at the age of 20 right they die at 80 so 60 years worth of time is just karmic energy isn't it this is karmic energy so karmic energy coming into fruition what is born arahat chitta is born so why then if the bhava hasn't been expired uh, or you know consumed entirely so bhava meaning one one lot of this right so this is a manusya bhava um, human bhava right if one lot of this has not been expired then how come when the that arahant chitta in this this human form has arisen and passed away and, and the and, and the human body is now has now has now broken down why does that arahant chitta not come back into being because if there's still karmic energy left the answer is when there is no longer ragadesha and moha there is nothing left to keep this together it's like a bouquet of flowers and the string that you use to tie it and hold it together so once you cut the string then as the flowers flowers fall apart and there's no longer a bouquet right in the same way this energy can only be kept trapped in here for as long as ragadesha and moha are there this ragadesha and moha is like passing a baton from one chitta to the next chitta it just keeps passing the baton so in every chitta there is ragadesha and moha right there's a bond here that keeps this that keeps this 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 energy in this form and the energy that you need to put in here the you know the the, the first bout of energy comes with the pratisandhi that is the point at which bhava happens right so for instance say you're a deva okay so few chitras pass you're a deva and now it's time to be born as a human so here's what we call a chuti parisandhi moment right in this moment this is a chuti and a parisandhi moment right so you've gone from deva to human there's an amount of ragadesha and moha in each of these chittas otherwise you know this this rebirth wouldn't happen clearly the ragadesha and moha that is in this in this in this chitta or the the, the mind base if you like right so that that could be the the dormant ragadesha moha these are the bonds that will take an amount of this energy and put a string around it the string is what we call ragadesha moha that will be there until the end of this 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 iteration right so this existence now as a as a human this will continue right and it will keep on feeding from this from this collection what happens is these strings are only tied every time a parisandhi happens jyoti parisandhi so therefore when an arahant becomes when one becomes an arahant at that point the string still remains but a new one is not going to be tied to this because for that you need bhava which is this force of becoming becoming a deva becoming a human becoming an animal that is what this bhava is all about becoming in other words accumulating the energy the karmic energy required to bring you that form of existence 
So at, at one point, this becomes an arahant, right? So this is the human form, and at one point, becomes an arahant, right? So let's say this is the arahant. Right, so we're going this way. Now, what, have, what has happened is, at, at this point, these bonds, right? So this, this string is, is kept held together by raga, dvesha, and moha, right? Through their practice here, so at the point somewhere here, they become a sotapan, and they continue their practice, right? These bonds, they were shattered. Now you imagine they were shackles, right? They're, 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 they're shattered, right? And at that point, the string still remains. But you can't tie another string because there's no ragadesha and moha. The, the clips, if you like, they cannot be used to try, to, to try, sorry, not to try, but to tie another bout of energy so that it brings another form of existence. So therefore, at the point of becoming an arahant, which is this point here, all of ragadesha and moha are dispelled, leaving just this string. But at the point, this body breaks down. Now, because there is no longer a force that is required to compound an amount of this energy into another package, if you like, because this, this force is not there, now the string can no longer sustain itself. Therefore, the energy is all released as pure energy. I don't know why I started talking about that, but there you go. Yeah, yes, of course, you know, so wherever there is ragadesha and moha, wherever there are these bonds exist, right, you're not only consuming, that's why I say, we are not only consumers, but we're also producers, so as we consume, we also produce, hmm? so this, this production goes back into filling that, and, and so, so whenever there's a chutipati sandhi, which is, you know, the, sh the, ch the change of one bhava to another. So a deva going into a human, a human going into a deva and so on. So if you are a human and you die and you're born a human again, chances are that is not a change of bhava, right? Chances are. There are the odd chances where it can also happen, but generally speaking, the bhava hasn't changed yet. But when it does happen, right, when the, when the change of bhava does happen, now what happens is this energy, again, it, it, you know, it's like, imagine if you had a balloon or a, or a shopping bag, Right? You use a shopping bag and you just swing it and you, you capture an amount of air and then you keep it together and you hold it. Okay, So you, you tie it with a string, but that string has to be held together. If you let go of the string, then you, you know, the, the air just releases you know, into the atmosphere. Okay, So it's a similar concept here. At the point of Chuti Pratisandhi, what happens is, it's like you're taking this bag, collecting an amount of air into that bag, right? And then by using a string, you're tying it. You, you tie it, and then you hold it. So this holding, or this clinging, is done through ragadesha and moha. Once you, once you continue with your practice, at, a, at the point where you become an arahant, you let go of this, right? But the, the, the string will remain. What will not happen is, after this, after the, the body breaks down and the mind can no longer be sustained. So for now, now for the mind to, to again, to come into being, you need another rupa because the mind is always dependent on a rupa, 
Without a rupa, you can't have a thought because the thought's objective is, is the thought's object is the rupa, right? So it needs a rupa. So, but because another rupa doesn't come into being, and why does it not come into being? Because now there is no force to collect an amount of air again. By in this in this metaphor, there's no there's no force to collect an amount of air again. But what's happened is this this energy that kept it together no longer exists. The string is there until the body remains, and when the body has been broken down, the string also is released, and at that point, all the energy that's within here is dispersed into the, into the atmosphere, into pure energy. Now, it seems something similar happens when one becomes a sotapanna. When one becomes a sotapanna, there will still be karmic energy. Right? So before becoming a sotapanna, there's karmic energy that can give you birth in the four great hells. Right? So the point at which you become a sotapanna, you know, it's like, Imagine you were holding on to this string with, with, with uh, say you had three hands. Of course, I can't show this to you, but let's just say there's another, there's a third hand, okay? Or let's say there are four hands. Now you have Sotapanna, Sakrudagami, the third is Anagami, and the fourth is Arahant. Okay, make sense? So four hands. When you practice the path, it's like you let go one finger at a time. This is your practice. But if you stop your practice and you start engaging again in unmeritorious deeds or Ayonuso Manasikara, you, 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 bring, you clench those fingers back again. Every time you continue your practice and you do Ayonuso Manasikara, it's like letting go of this. But the hand is still there until all five have been released. At that point, this hand is no longer required. Now you have become a Zodapan. Now, the, 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 the hold on this balloon is not strong enough to keep some of the strong karmas in there. So what happens? They leak out. Karmas like what? That bring you rebirth in the four great hells. It's not strong enough now to keep those, those karmas contained within this. this. In this simile here, the air in that balloon. So let's say the hot air. Let's say it's hot air or just very, very active, some kind of active air. That, that, that air leaks out. But the, remain, the, the rest remains. And then you start the practice as a Sakrudagami, because that's the next step. That's the, that's the next hand. So whenever you keep on practicing, right, you let go one finger at a time. But if you stop practicing, and then go back into, you know, living this lay attitude, Ayanuso Manasikara, again, these, these fingers clench back again. But you won't, get the, you won't go back to being a Prutakjana. That state has been completely eradicated. But you can keep going up and down, in the stage that you are practicing. That's why if you, if you stop your practice or if you are not diligent with your practice, you may not, you may not progress from this state for, for a long time. Remember last week I talked about dusting a piece of cloth and, and wiping the dust. Right? Every time you do a, an Ayonuso Manasikara, an act with Ayonuso Manasikara, you are, you are, bending the, you are clen- clenching these fingers again. And every time you do a Yonasa Manasikara, you are letting go. You are releasing these fingers. But only on, at the point you have released all five can this hand now come off. And at that point you become an Anagami. So now the Anagami practice is required. Actually you can think of three because Sotapanna takes you to Sakrudagami, Sakrudagami takes you to Anagami, and Anagami takes you to, takes you to the Arahat. Right? So once you have completed the, so, so the Arahant is the fourth one. Right, ara, arahat path. This is practicing the path, releasing these fingers. So an anagami person also can take you know a long amount of time. 
before they become an arahant because it just depends on how diligently they practice. If they practice all the time, always mindful and mindfully aware, right, then these fingers are one at a time, they're being released. But if they're not diligent in their practice, if they're not mindful, right, if they're not uh, practicing the path, not taking the Dhamma sermons, they're not being uh, practicing, the, they're doing their meditation and so on, or their reflection, their contemplation, then these fingers will come back again and, and, and hold a, a strong, strong, strong hold. But you're not going to get, go back to being a Sakrudagami. That won't happen. Because once let go, let go. But at the point you become an Anagami person, right? Now all you have is the Arahat path to practice, right? Therefore, a lot of the energy that's in this balloon will have released because the, the hold is not strong enough to keep any karma that will bring you rebirth in the karmic plane, in the, uh, uh, the form, form, form plane or the, the Rupa plane. So, you know, the Rupa plane, the Kama Vajra worlds, the sensual world. There's not enough karmic energy or the, the, the karmic energy to bring you rebirth in the, in the sensual plane is just too strong now to be held together by the hole that remains on the balloon of one who has become an anagami person. That's why that energy has been released now. So there's not energy, there's no more energy in there to bring you rebirth in the sensual plane again. Therefore now rebirth can only happen in the form plane and the formless plane. The rupa avatara worlds and the arupa avatara worlds. That's the way it works. So once you become an arahant then finally the arahant path is practiced, right? And then at one point the last hand is also released. So what happens then? Now this 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 like I said there was a string here, right? So because this shape took place at the point of the, the the human being born as a human being, the whatever energy is there will remain there. But now there is no longer a hand to catch another amount of energy, another amount of air. So therefore, another karma, another bhava doesn't happen. Now that energy has been released into what you call pure energy. And there is not a force now that remains to, to capture, to recapture pure energy back into, back into bhava. Actually, what bhava is, after all, is the shaping or the configuration of pure energy into various forms. That is what bhava actually means. If someone becomes an arahant, the karmic energy that was captured at the point that bhava happened last time, because remember, until they become an arahant, this is, this is being fed, right? It's, they're not just uh, consumers, they're also producers. Right? So as much as energy is, is, is drawn out, energy is put back in there. But that energy doesn't go into the, into the pure energy. It keeps going back into this balloon. This, this is the, what we call the karma kosha. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a capturing of energy. This is separation after all. Can't you see separation here? This is everything and this separation. It's like a set. Like, you know, like a Venn diagram, you have a set here, right? This, this, this is capturing of energy, energy that belongs to everything, really. But, but once, once bhava stops happening, at that point, like I said, there is no more ragadesha moha. Because there's more, no more ragadesha moha, this energy can, can no longer be channeled back into this balloon. Okay, this energy that, that, that is consumed is consumed, but this energy can no longer be channeled back into that balloon. But the energy that was there at the beginning keeps on feeding out because now it's just, you know, air keeps 
flowing out of the balloon. Now it's like, you know, if you had, uh, if you had a balloon and you were trying to blow it up by putting it into a pump, for as long as it's connected to the pump, right, and you keep pumping on the, on the thing, the, the lever, the, the, the air fills the balloon. But if at any point it comes off, now there's only one thing that's going to happen. Air is not going to go in now. Air is just going to keep coming, coming out of the balloon, right? That's once you stop creating Baba. That's, that's at the point you become an Arahant. Yeah, that's the point you become an Arahant. But the air that's already in there, you know, that, that energy is just looking to be freed. Because that energy actually does belongs to pure energy. This is, this is an artificial capturing of energy. So, this, this energy will keep on releasing itself until the body remains. Because the body has a connection with the mind and the, the, the mind how, is housed in this, in this body and therefore these two things work together for as long as the, the body is there, the mind will continue to, to draw on this energy. So at the point the body breaks down, then there is no longer this string that has kept the, the air pumping in that, not pumping, sorry, releasing in that direction. So therefore what happens is all the air in that, in that very moment, let's say you had uh, say thousand units, okay, thousand units of karma. At the point of becoming an arahant, you had consumed three hundred. Say this is a young arahant, okay. You still have seven hundred units of karma left, right? So if you lived as lived on as a human being, you can live on for as, for as long as you have this seven hundred units of karma in there. But you are not producing any new karma. But at the point the body breaks, therefore the mind can no longer be associated with this body, at that point, this 700 units of energy is released into pure energy. That's what happens. And until they become an arahant, when they, when they consume this 300, another 300 was pumped back in, into this balloon. And, you know, this, I'm very, giving you a very simple, you know, uh, a simplified picture of this, because in fact, in this balloon, you can have other balloons as well. Various others, but let's not go there because it just complicates the, the the analogy. Right? So this is probably Greek to some, but uh, I don't know why, why I explained all that. <laughs> if it made sense to you, then good. If it didn't make sense to you, then even better. <laughs> the, the, the the long and story and short of this is, whenever we do things for our Selves. That was what I started talking about this morning. Whenever you do things for yourself, right, this will keep on happening. Because this is all self-based. Raga, Desha, Moha, which are the bonds that keep this together, are all self-based. Because Raga, Desha and Moha have everything to do with self-sustenance. What is Raga? Associating with the things that I like. What is Desha? Dissociating myself from the things that I don't like. What is moha? Comparing myself with the things I like and the things I don't like, or others. Right? This is compar- comparison. So all, raga, deja, and moha, all three of them are based in this sense of self. For as long as the self remains, this will keep on happening. Once you become an araha, once you become a sotapanna at the very least, yeah, you begin to understand that this is what's going on here. Uh, you are convinced of this, and you, out of conviction, you understand. Not just, you know, just you know, understanding a logic, but this becomes your your default state. 
then you realize this is what's going on here. So this, this self is not really a self, it's just a sense of self. This is actually just what the Buddha called dukkha or suffering, right? And for as long as this remains, all I'm doing is really punishing myself. I'm not rewarding myself. I, I'm just creating my own suffering. So what you treasured now becomes your greater source of misery. Because what you used to treasure was the self. You wanted to look good. You wanted to ex- enjoy yourself. You wanted to experience things, right? And just keep yourself happy, right? That's what we've done all our lives. Try and keep ourselves happy. But once you realize that this self that I thought was something to be kept happy is really my source of misery, <laughs> this is the punishment. Right? This is the danger. This is the evil. This is the demon. Once you realize that, now you just want to expel the demon, not keep it and feed it. For that, that once that realization happens, now I, you don't need my convincing to practice. Your practice will be self-inspired. Not that self, <laughs> but you know the chitta that has understood this will be inspired to carry on with the practice. That is what we need to do. We'll continue the conversation again maybe next week. So let's transfer the merits and bring today's sermon to a close. Let us all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired, reminding ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude towards the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas who have since time immemorial protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief previous of all of the chapters who dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to all of them. Let us also transfer these merits to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhansi, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble laidfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all transfer these merits we have acquired to all our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who continue to extend their well wishes and their know-how. May by the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, Grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, employees and employees and our teachers, as well as those who would have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, and primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samadhisasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And by the power of these merits, may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss 
Falling Bhagavan. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to all those who would have lost their lives in, in the wars, be they friend or foe, as well as those who sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. This includes members of the armed forces as well as the police force. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who would have lost their lives to natural disasters, such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, blizzards, as well as the pandemics, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, friends and acquaintances to us, and people who would have sacrificed their lives for us. With an abundance amount of compassion, loving kindness, and gratitude to all of them, let us transfer all these maids we have acquired to all of them. May, by the power of these maids, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may finally, may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahant in Vahanse, an arahant in Vahanse in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you. Raga Ginnengmidatnva Dvesha Ginnengmidatnva Moha Ginnengmidatnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukita Taravetna Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukita Taravetna Mamada Sialu Loka Sialu Satnayo Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukita Taravetna Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukita Taravetna Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukita Taravetna Raga Gini Niveva Vesha Gini Niveva Moha Gini Niveva Nivan Sapalabeva Nivan Sapalabeva Nivan Sapala Deva Tunvan Gesu Sianant Mahaguna Belen, Silo Loka Silo Satyoma, Nibana Paramasukin, Sukit Paravetva, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.